was a British businessman who built a vast empire back in the 19th century, a vast diamond empire in South Africa. And he was being interviewed and was asked about all of his great wealth and his success. And at the end of the interview, the reporter just kind of offhanded said, you must be really happy. And Rhodes replied, happy? No. I spent my life amassing a fortune only to find that I've spent half of it on doctors to keep me out of the grave and the other half on lawyers to keep me out of jail. Kind of reminds me of something that H.G. Wells said about money. He said, money like everything else is a deception and a disappointment. Now, there may be a kernel in truth in what both Wells and Rhodes said about money and wealth, but they don't tell the whole picture. Nor do they really capture the entirety of what God's Word says to us about money and wealth. Because despite what some people may think, the Bible is not against people being wealthy. But it is against the misuse of wealth. See, God doesn't care so much about how much you make as to how you make it and how and why you save and spend it. He cares more about the heart that holds the bank account than what the bank account holds. Does that make sense? Or as John Wesley summed it up, he said, as far as money, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Which reminds me of another story I wanted to share as we get started. Another late 19th century, early 20th century journalist and philanthropist, a guy named William Allen White, known as the Sage of Emporia, Kansas, for you know anybody who's ever been there. Uh, he demonstrated his perspective on wealth in a dedication to a city park that he gave. He gave a park to the city, and he gave it in memory of his daughter who had died in a tragic horseback riding accident. And at the dedication, he said this, This is the last kick in a fistful of dollars I'm getting rid of today. I've always tried to teach that there are three kicks in every dollar. One when you make it, the second's when you have it, and the third kick comes when you give it away. The big kick is the last one. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Now James, if you'll turn to James chapter 5, James could see among the people in the churches that he was writing to and and the people in their cities uh, that there were some worldly perspectives on wealth some unhealthy perspectives on wealth. And and James, what he says here is pretty bold in what he writes because everybody knows that nobody likes it when the preacher talks about money, right? You're sure to get your toes stepped on. But James cared too much for his congregations to ignore this problem. And so he gives them an urgent and stern warning that I think applies to us today. So let's begin at James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasures in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out to you, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is that James issues 
a warning to the wealthy, and he begins with a call to attention. He calls them and us to attention. He says, come now, you rich people. Now, the big question is, who is James addressing here? The you rich people, are these Christians or are they non-Christians? Well, you may remember back in James chapter 1, uh, we talked about this. James had written to the brother of humble circumstance. He mentions the brother of humble circumstance and contrasts him with simply the rich. And what we said is that the, the, the best interpretation of this is that these are both Christians. Okay, Both the brother of humble circumstance and the rich person in James 1 are Christians within the church, the, the churches that James is writing to. And what he's doing is he's encouraging that lowly brother, that brother that's suffering uh, hard times, he's encouraging them to remember their exaltation in Christ. But to the wealthier brothers and sisters in Christ, he's admonishing them to remember their mortality, that they are just human. So he's trying to kind of bring them both together to, to rightly see their stance uh, as human beings, but human beings loved by God. But here in James chapter 5, most scholars agree that James is speaking about non-believing wealthy people. He's talking about wealthy people who are not Christians. Now, James is writing to churches, so it may be that some of these wealthy people were in these churches, were attending these churches, or it may be that James is just writing to these churches and talking about these wealthy people as a way to encourage the Christians who are being mistreated and oppressed, but I think also maybe to, to warn them to beware lest they fall into the same trap as these wealthy people. So either way, we know that anyone, including us, who are reading or hearing James's words, they're sobering words of caution. He's calling us to attention, and then secondly, he's giving us a cause for anguish. He's saying that this warning is a cause for anguish because misused wealth leads to many miseries. And James could see these miseries were coming upon his readers because they were suffering the unjust treatment from these wealthy people. But he also sees these miseries coming upon the wealthy. And he's warning them, he's basically telling these wealthy people to weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you because of the way you've brought miseries onto other people. So what, what, what goes around comes around. It's sort, sort of that idea. He's calling those who are oppressing the poor to weep and wail over the miseries they will face. In these verses, James sounds very much like an Old Testament prophet, especially Amos. Uh, Amos called out the wealthy of Israel who were not only failing to help the poor in suffering, but were actually profiting off of their suffering. We heard some of that in our Old Testament reading this morning about, Je about Amos calling out these people. But listen to what Amos also said in Amos chapter 4. He said, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor. Amos didn't. No, you don't call women cows. I'm sorry. You do not do that, ever. Amos did. He said, You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. And that was a prophecy about the Assyrians who were going to come in and take them away into captivity. Neither Amos nor James leave us any doubt about the nature of the miseries of God's judgment 
and the steep cost of misusing wealth. And so James, after kind of calling out, issuing this warning to these wealthy people, he now begins an appraisal of their worth and of their wealth, Okay, what they thought was their worth. At verses 2 and 3, look at that with me again. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last day. So continuing in that grand tradition of the prophets and the Old Testament wisdom literature and even Jesus, James describes the futility of putting our hope in or basing our worth in our stuff, in the things that we possess, the riches and goods of this life. James is showing the absurdity of what Kelly so wonderfully illustrated here of putting our pleasure and possessions ahead of people. People are eternal People are made in the image of God. People are loved by God to the point He died on the cross for us. How foolish to mistreat or neglect people for the sake of our possessions. Amen? For our stuff. Stuff that's here today and gone tomorrow. People are eternal. Specifically, James calls them out for trusting in three things. Grains, garments, and gold. And these were sort of the three measures of wealth in the ancient world. Today we might look at houses and cars and retirement portfolios, you know. But, but either way, whether it's today or 2,000 years ago, these are things that will not last. They're passing. He talks first about rotten grain in verse 2. Now the word in your Bible is probably the same in mine. It says wealth. But the fact that he mentions wealth as distinct from the garments and the gold and the fact that he describes it as rotten is what lends most commentators to think that he's specifically talking about wealth in grain. Like I said, grain was, was, a, was a big a show of wealth at the time. Uh, so what do we think about today? Because I don't know about you and me, but I don't measure my, my wealth in grain, do you? Um, I, don't have a, I don't have a farm that raises wheat or anything like that. Well, we can think of this as anything with an expiration date. Anything we have that we know its time is short, right? Anything that has an expiration date, we, anything we would measure our worth by that we know is eventually going to be useless, rotten, and no good. For example, being undefeated 8-0 in college football doesn't last forever. And next Saturday, you know, that's going to expire for somebody. That's all I'm saying. And I was telling somebody earlier, I said, uh, I said, you know, I'm kind of in a losing position next Sunday because if Tennessee wins and I come, you guys aren't going to want to stay and eat lunch with me. But if, if, Tennessee, if, if, if Tennessee wins, but if Tennessee loses and Georgia wins, you guys are all going to just never let me live it down, right? So I mean, either way, next Sunday, I'm in a losing position here. So he, he, he talks about their, their, their rotten grain, right? Stuff that we know just isn't going to last. Then he talks about ruined garments. You know, fine clothes are not immune to rotting either and, and to being ruined. They don't last forever. They're either eaten by moths or you wear out the knees or, or they succumb to uh, ever-changing fashion or ever-expanding waistlines. E either way, our garments don't last forever. And so why would we elevate something that we wear a limited number of times 
Why would we elevate that above the people and the things that we know never go out of fashion, that last forever? And then third, he talks about rusted gold. Now, when, when James describes gold and silver as rusted or corroded, he's not implying that gold and silver actually rust. We know that they don't. They don't corrode like that. Uh, so James is using poetic language to basically describe how they drop in value, how they become tainted, how they, become, they lose their worth and their value. So just as grain and garments eventually go bad, guess what? So can our money. Now, it could be your bank account. It could be your, your retirement plan. Eventually, you either run out of it or it loses its value. And anybody who's been watching the stock market understands what I'm talking about, about our money losing its value. James's point here is not hard for us to grasp. If we're obsessed with grain, garments, and gold, we won't be able to help but weep and howl when they're gone. Or when we someday realize that the things we thought were so important, that we worked so hard to accumulate, that we worried so much about keeping, when we realize they weren't quite as valuable as we thought they were. That will result in weeping and wailing. And then the last thing he talks about is reckoning gained. A reckoning gained. There in verse 3, he tells us, and what a mental image here, he talks about how the corrosion of our gold and silver corrodes us. Eats our flesh like fire, he says. Wealth can become corrosive to our character, can't it? And so he says it can be a witness against us that someday we might stand before the throne of God and what we did with what God blessed us with could be a witness against us. Also, that day of reckoning, he says, it wastes away our life. Before God's throne, we will realize that we wasted so much of our life worrying about riches and pleasure and things that in eternity are meaningless like the Scripture talks about, that someday our works will be judged as if by fire. And the things that we built our lives with that were, that were stubble and hay and wood will be burned away and only what is eternal will be left behind. And then finally he says it walks away with our hope. Misused wealth will be a witness against us. It wastes away our life. And he says it walks away with our hope. He says there in verse 3, he says... Uh, you have stored up treasure in the last day. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but when we place our hope in material things, we're always going to be disappointed. It's always going to let us down. And what a tragic picture James paints here of the rich spending their lives to accumulate all of this wealth, not realizing they're living their last days. They're worried so much about tomorrow. They're gathering things together as if they're going to live forever, but they're living in their last days. They were speeding toward eternity and never stopped to take notice. Now, I can't read this and not help think about the, 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 uh, the parable we talked about last week where Jesus talked about the rich farmer who had this bumper crop and so he had so much stuff, so much grain, he tore down his old barns, built newer, bigger barns, stored it all away, and then at the end of the day he said, man, you've got so many goods laid up for so many years, so just take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. What he didn't realize is he was racing around to accumulate all of this stuff. Death was racing towards him. And God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Now Jesus 
sums up his point in this parable in verse 21 of Luke 12. He says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, Jesus expanded on this in the Sermon on the Mount, as we heard in our New Testament reading today, where he tells us to not store up treasures for ourselves on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead we are to store treasures in heaven where those things cannot destroy, where thieves cannot steal. Why? Because he says where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where your priorities are going to be. There is indeed a heavy cost to misusing our wealth and having wealth in the wrong place of priority in our life. And James next details specifically what that looks like. Think about this next section as an audit of their wrongdoing, sort of like an audit of worst practices when it comes to what we do with our wealth and possessions. An audit of their wrongdoings. And the first one he mentions is hoarding. Hoarding. There at the end of verse 3, you have stored up treasure in the last days. Now, last week we talked about planning for the future, right? So it kind of overlaps with this. And one thing we said is God's not against planning for the future. And God is not against us saving our money. So, for example, in Proverbs 21.20, it says that precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. In other words, he saves that stuff. He's got that stuff there in his pantry. But a foolish man just devours everything as he gets it. Proverbs 10.5 says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So God urges us to be wise. He urges us to give thought to the future, to humbly but prudently plan for the future, humbly because we know that ultimately God's in charge of our future, not us. But within what we know, within what we are aware of, we are to be wise stewards of what God gives us. Even if that means you're, 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 you're putting aside an inheritance for your children and your grandchildren, you want to save up money to pay for your grandkids' college, there's nothing wrong with that. Hoarding takes place when we continue to accumulate above and beyond that which is necessary. That's hoarding. Have you ever seen that show, Hoarders? Okay, you ever watch that? It's pretty disgusting. As people live in awful, awful conditions. And it's really a sickness. Now, they, 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 whatever it is they're obsessed on hoarding, they have to hoard it. They have to collect it. You know, and I've, 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 I've been in people's houses where they just have stacks of newspaper everywhere. They can't throw it out. They've got to keep and have every single copy of it. And, and it actually becomes enslaving to them. This obsession to have everything of whatever it is, it enslaves them. They become trapped by this desire to hoard. Or maybe you've heard stories about people who seem to live just these almost hermit-like lives. They never gave any money away. They never spent any money on themselves. You, you thought they were poor and then they die and you come to find out they had this great wealth that they never did anything with. Now, we may not be at either of those extremes, but how much are we accumulating stuff just to have it? Just because we have to have it. We're not putting it to good use. We're not sharing with others. We're not using it for God's kingdom purposes. It's just, I've got to have it. It's all about me. That's hoarding. Secondly, James calls out fraud. Fraud is another worst practice when it comes to wealth. Look at verse 4. Look, 
The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. Now, I have to make a confession. Uh, I kind of had gotten a little bit behind on paying Andrew for some of the yard work that his crew was doing in my yard because it was going to an email account that just is flooded. It's become flooded with spam, and I was losing it in there. So I made sure made that right with you the other day, didn't I, Andrew? We're, we're good now. So I don't want to. I want to practice what I preach, right? I don't want Matt crying out at me, you know, and, and, and Andrew and, and the guys who, who mowed the yard. Uh, but seriously, though, the Old Testament consistently speaks out against defrauding workers, taking advantage of the people who work for you. Leviticus nineteen thirteen. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses says, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Now, this doesn't mean that that if you've got employees, you've got to pay them every day. That was the way the economy functioned then. They didn't have banks. They didn't have debit cards. They didn't have auto draft, that kind of stuff. You had to get your money in hand that day so you could go to the market and buy your food for that night. But the point is, is that when you owe somebody their pay, you pay them. You don't withhold it overnight. You don't keep it from them. Uh, Proverbs 3, 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those whom it is due. So that's basically what that Leviticus passage says. If you've got something that's due to somebody, you give it to them. When it is in your power to act, do not say to your neighbor, Come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. But the people that James is talking about, they weren't living by those commands. The rich here that he's talking about, they weren't going to be hurt by paying the wages when it was due. It's not like that they had lost an invoice in their email. It's not that they uh, couldn't make ends meet and so they couldn't pay these people. No, these are people that are withholding that money fraudulently. They're doing it for greed. They don't want to pay out what they owe somebody. And their workers who were living day to day and hand to mouth were hurting. Now, notice in this verse that James talks about two different cries. Two different cries here that were going up to God. The first is the cry of the unpaid wages. Look at verse 4. He says, the pay that you withheld cries out. It's not the guys mowing the field crying out. It's the pay crying out. It's this word picture that, that makes us imagine that money sitting in the bank account crying out to God because it's not being sent to the person that it is due. It reminds me of when uh, Abel's blood cried out from the ground after Cain murdered him. The wages are crying out. But secondly, then the harvesters, the the workers themselves, are also crying out in anguish. Imagine them crying out because they go home that night to sit down and eat with their family and they're all just sharing a crust of bread. Or maybe they have nothing to eat when they could have had plenty to eat if they hadn't been cheated by their employers. And listen, these cries do not go unnoticed. God hears them loud and clear. Just as He heard the cries of the Israelites in Egypt enslaved, and what did God do? He sent Moses and plagues to set them free. God heard the cries and He acted in judgment. The cries of the oppressed are always heard 
by the God who is greater than all the hosts of heaven. This, this name for God that James uses here is intentional. The ears of the Lord of armies. He's saying that this cry from this unjust treatment of these workers, it reaches the ears of the commander-in-chief of the angel armies. The God who is able to, to hand out justice and judgment to those who are oppressing and taking advantage of others. He calls out hoarding. He calls out fraud. And third, he calls out self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now here James is talking about people who are using their wealth to pamper themselves. And, and again, in this verse, James has to have that passage in Amos, Amos chapter 4 in mind. He has to have that in mind. James might as well have called them the fat cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria because what he says here echoes that so much. But whether it's the wealthy of Samaria or the early church or of the 21st century, listen, there are needs all around us and many of them could be met with just a simple act of generosity. Nothing heroic, just a simple act of generosity. But how often are we oblivious to those needs? How often are we guilty of thinking only of ourselves, being concerned for our own comfort, spending money to satisfy our own selfish pleasures? James has a devastating word for this kind of wanton, luxurious living. And again, he pulls from this cow imagery from Amos, and he says that such people are fattening themselves up for the day of judgment. Just like a cow is eating and eating and eating and thinking, man, I've got it made. These, these people are great. They're giving me all this to eat. And he doesn't even realize he's fattening himself up for the day of slaughter. And James says that's the way these wealthy people are living. They are fattening themselves up for a coming day of slaughter, a day of judgment. And finally, James calls them out for murder. Now, you, you're probably like, ooh, boy, that accelerated quickly. <laughs> We're up to murder. He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Now, James isn't accusing these people about going out and like stabbing and hacking away at people and killing them. That's not what he's saying. James has something far more subtle but just as deadly in mind. And we heard it in our passage, our Old Testament passage in Amos 5. Talked about this. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on James, he explains it this way. He says, James is referring to judicial murder. Primarily referring to taking away the means of making a living. The landed gentry controlled the courts. The poor could not oppose them because they had no way to use the system and thus were helpless. Just like Amos talked about that the poor couldn't even go to court and get justice because the courts have been corrupted by the wealthy and the powerful. It's a systemic problem here. And, and, it, and you think, well, murder is a little bit harsh, but you know, these wealthy people knew very well that the way they were treating these individuals, in one way or another, they were murdering them. Either they were leaving them so destitute they were going to starve to death or freeze to death or whatever... But there are other ways you can kill somebody. You can kill their spirit. You can kill their reputation. You can kill their livelihood, their dignity. There are more ways than one to destroy somebody's life. 
Now, when I read what James says here in verse 6 about murdering, condemning and murdering the righteous who do not resist, I can't help but think about Jesus. Jesus was righteous, perfect, and innocent, and He was put to death unjustly. And He had all the power in heaven. He could have called down those angel armies to destroy everyone and set Himself free from that cross, but He didn't resist. And He willingly died on that cross to provide forgiveness and grace and eternal life for sinners like you and me. Listen, in this passage, this passage is harsh. James doesn't pull any punches. But he writes this not to just be critical, but to urge the wealthy to recognize their riches can't save them. Their riches will never come through on the promises that they make. And he's calling them to repent. To repent of the unjust treatment of their workers. Their negligence towards the poor and the suffering around them. He's calling them to share God's blessings with others rather than hoard it all for themselves. It's like in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls us in the Beatitudes to be poor. To be poor in spirit. That means that we acknowledge our spiritual poverty, that there's nothing within myself that can make me right with God. No amount of good I can do, no amount of money I can give, no amount of prestige I can claim, there's nothing I can do to make myself right with God because I am spiritually broke. Maybe this morning you've been placing your hope in stuff. Your security has been in trying to make enough and save enough and put away enough money. You've been trying to find happiness and pleasure and and spending money and creature comforts and it just isn't working for you. There's still an emptiness that's there. You can never have enough toys. (laughs) There's never enough. You always want something more, right? We always want the the bigger, the newer, the the, the best. We we, we have this, this thirst that wealth and possessions can never quench. But Jesus can. Jesus can satisfy us. We sung about already this morning. I invite you this morning. If you've never come to Jesus Christ in that spirit of humility and poverty and say, Jesus, I need you. I've been trying to earn my way. I've been trying to, to fix my own problems. I've been trying to find my own happiness and it's just not working. If you've never come to Jesus Christ and just pleaded with Him to give you the riches of His grace, a treasure that will never fade and never perish. I invite you in a moment as we sing to come today and to do that today. Jesus left the throne of heaven. He set aside all of His riches and all of His his glory and all of this that He was due. He set it aside to come down and to humbly be born a baby, to live a sinless life, to suffer an unjust death, and to take your sins and mine upon Himself on the cross. He did that for you. He became poor so that you and I could be rich in the riches that last forever. Will you trust in Him today? If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning. For those of us that have done that, for those of us who who know we belong to Jesus Maybe we need to repent of our tendency to become a little too enamored with all the trinkets and toys of this world. 
It's so easy for us to get distracted by all the shiny, pretty things and, and we lose focus. And we find ourselves misprioritizing the things of this world and kind of putting on the back burner the things of God, the things that really matter. We can be guilty of neglecting the hungry, the naked. We, we don't visit those who are sick and in prison. We, we don't take care of the least of these. Maybe we need to repent of that. Maybe you need to repent and, and confess that you worry too much about the economy. You let that keep you up at night. You're focusing too much on accumulating wealth out of either greed or fear. You find yourself failing to be generous, even sacrificial, with the blessings that God has given you to share it with other people. Listen, whether you consider yourself well off or trying to make ends meet, we need to remember there are riches in Christ Jesus that this world can never offer, can never even begin to comprehend. God offers us so much. He is the hope that never walks away. And a life lived for Jesus is a life that's never wasted. And a life of selfless service will also be a witness for us as we leave behind a legacy of generosity and faithfulness to those who come behind us. Which will it be for you? Would you stand with me and let's pray? And I invite you to respond as God's Spirit leads you this morning. Father, we have heard some, some difficult words, some prophetic words from James. Lord, that might make us uncomfortable. And I know Your Spirit has been convicting me these past few weeks. And God, forgive me for the times that I get a little too focused on the here and now and, and the things that, that I want or the things I think that my family needs. And they're not bad things. But God, sometimes we get the cart before the horse and we forget that You're in charge and You're the one who provides. And if we live faithfully for You, if we seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness, all these things will be added to us. God, forgive us. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us to respond as Your Spirit leads us this morning. Lord, there may be some confession that needs to happen today. There may be some hard repentance, some turning around and changing our focus, changing our direction today. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray we'd be obedient to You. And if there's anyone here today that needs to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life, I pray they would come now. Lord, you not with this church family, Lord. Whatever You're leading us to do, may we obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.